We are so glad to have you back for another edition of Tuesdays Are for Talking. This week, I sat down with our lead pastor, Morgan Stevens, and asked him your questions. That's right. We went out to social media and asked the people of Mosaic, what do you want to know about your pastor? This podcast is going to provide the answer to many of those questions. Thanks for tuning in. Without any further ado, let's get right into it with Pastor Morgan. Here we go. Pastor Morgan Stevens, man, we're so glad to have you on today's podcast. I know this is going to be a lot of fun. I think the first question I'm just going to ask is, what do you think about our Tuesdays or for talking podcast so far? Well, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I think they've been great. It's been super interesting to hear all the topics and all the people and all the voices, and I'm honored to be on today's with you. Well, we're really glad you're here. Obviously, we threw out a little note on social media, as you may have seen. And we asked the good people of Mosaic, what do you want to know about your pastor? And so they gave us a lot of great feedback, and we'll get into some of those questions. But there's one question that if I were you, it's probably something that I would have been asked many times. I'm sure you have been asked many times, and I'm sure it's probably kept you up at night. I'm sure you've had some dreams about it, maybe even some nightmares about it. But I want to go ahead and get in with this hard-hitting question right from the start. And the question is, who is a better athlete, you or Pastor Brett? Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. Well, I think that there's, of course, as you would imagine, there's only one answer. It's obvious. You know, it's right off the top of my mind. And that's going to be, it's it's definitely Pastor Brett. <laughs> man, it's definitely Pastor Brett. If, if you're defining athletic by, you know, stronger, faster, jump higher, all that, then it's him. Although I'll say... It's probably, for those of you who just joined us, Pastor Brett and I were both uh, many you know, lifetimes ago, both college athletes, so we have some friendly rivalry that takes place from time to time that devolves into not so friendly occasionally, but we managed to keep it on, on, on the up and up for the sake of our kids and, you know, you know, I don't know, the, the gospel and so forth. Anyway, but, you know, sport by sport, if, if it's football, Brett, if it's basketball, Brett, you know, baseball, I'd like to sort of hedge my bets there and say it's going to be me. Soccer, tennis, maybe me. Golf, probably him. So, and then it's coin flip after that, I suppose. But definitely it's Brett, and I'll just tip my cap to him. That's awesome. Brett is a great athlete. Although I'd love to take both of you out on the golf course. It's probably the only sport where I might have a chance against such mighty men as yourselves. But that would be that would be a lot of fun. Brett's a great athlete, a good sport. Some of my favorite memories are watching you guys play like kickball because you uh-huh. get a little cross sport action there and you both think you're the best. And you know you have a lot of people that vote on that at the end of every game. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we'll, have, we'll have to do that again sometime mm-hmm. soon. That's always a good time. Dude, you're such an interesting guy with a lot of interest, and we'll, we'll get into that in, in a little bit. But another question that people asked, and I found this one to be pretty interesting, if you could pick who would play you in a movie about your life, who would you pick and why? Wow. Well, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm fairly flattered by the question and actually don't think that I'm all that interesting, nor would I ever deserve a movie. But if someone were to film something about me, I think I would probably be more in the category of like the ABC after school special. So not a movie, not even like, not even like a Netflix series, just like a one time 20 minute kind of thing. So, and if that's the case, if I'm an ABC after school special, I suppose you have to reach back in a kind of like nineties, two thousands Gen X culture. So I'd probably pick, you know, again, if I couldn't get Denzel to play me and that may not be likely for a number of reasons, I'll let the audience fill the blank in and their minds at this moment. But I think it would probably be like Jason Priestley, Luke Perry, <laughs> whoever the dudes were on Dawson Creek, you know, that kind of era. I think that's probably one of the people who would play me in my 22-minute ABC after-school special. There you go. It's a, It would be a very special one, though, a very special 
after school special. Very special. I'm trying to imagine that like, is this the, is this the dare to keep kids off drugs after school special? Or is it like the Hallmark movie Christmas special kind of thing? Which, which one are it you would going be, to? It would be a motivational, like Rudy type thing. Right? <laughs> like, you know, you come from behind, the kid sits at the end of the bench gets into the game and manages to make contact, you know, gets the game winning hit kind of thing. So probably more like a Rudy type thing, like, like never give up kids. Don't give up on your dreams. That'd be it, that kind of thing. <laughs> okay. Well, that's good. Well, how about this? Let's get into this. I don't trust skinny people when it comes to food. Let me just say that up front. So, you know, <laughs> Pastor Jim Lafoon has told me that many times. Well, Pastor so. Jim is a, is a wise man and he and I have had many good discussions about good food, but, but I do happen to know that despite your appearance, you are a connoisseur of good food. And so let me ask you a few restaurant questions. People ask this. I think it's a good question. Just generally speaking, I mean, what is the best restaurant experience you've ever had? Oh my gosh. Well, this sounds like just super snobby. I'm just telling, but a few years ago, my wife and I got to go to, to, to Paris, France, and just about any place you eat over there is pretty amazing. So uh, the French are known for food. They don't get everything right, but they, they do tend to get their food right. I know people have a bone to pick with that. Uh, so I've had a number of, of good meals over there, and you can definitely gain a bunch of weight, even though you're walking around all day. Uh, there's between the, the bread and the cheese and so forth and the sauces. I think one of my favorite places was actually I'm trying to think by city I like places I've been to in New York there's a Lombardi's pizza it's there fairly close to Greenwich Village maybe in little Italy I forget the the, the place there but it's a really famous pizza place Lombardi's I love pizza love Italian food and so Lombardi's pizza there if you've been to New York you've probably been there and they make these huge pies. It's this old school place. They cram you in there. They used to anyway, pre-COVID, like sardines. And you get a pie that's as large as like a, a tire. And it's a good time. That sounds like a good time. I, the best pizza I ever had was in this place in Idaho Springs, Colorado. It was called Bojo's Pizza. And uh, they, they, they make an amazing pizza. And then the, the crust is like the, the outside crust somehow it's like savory and sweet at the same time. And so as you're finishing up your pizza, and of course it's been years since I've been there, but they would come and bring around like a little, a little tray of cinnamon and sugar in a, in a bottle oh. of honey. And so Boy. you basically use your thick pizza crust, like a sopapilla at the end of the meal becomes your dessert. It was, it was amazing. So I'm with you on the good pizza. Thing. It's like entree and dessert, entree. dinner and a show right there. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, we're going by food types. Okay. So you said you like Italian food and I I don't know if everybody considers pizza Italian food, but we'll go with it for sure. now. All right. So obviously being in Texas, I got to ask you these two questions. Number one, what's the best barbecue you've had? Well, I'll just go ahead and acknowledge I've never been to Franklin. I know it's amazing. I just, it's the middle of the day and I feel like I don't have three hours of standing in line for a meal. So that maybe Fair kick enough. me out of, <laughs> kick me out of the, and that's, we'll get to strengths finder later, I think, but that's my achiever theme kicking in right there. Like, man, that's a lot of time just to get a, to get a bite to eat. But probably, I think Southside Barbecue went to that place in Elgin. Obviously, Rudy's is up there. Love Rudy's, man. That's just like a, almost a weekly thing for me. But Southside was so good. I don't get it. You know, they just put one in over there at Arbor Walk. So I love that place, man. That's their brisket, turkey. It's good stuff. I'm with you. I'm with you. Rudy's is always a good standby. Of course, shout out to one of our church members, Craig Haley, helps run the place yes. actually, and so they are a weekly staple. But I think I'm with you, man. And I'm I'm, I'm a barbecue snob, a connoisseur. I think I've been all over the place. And that Southside, man, their, their sausage, their brisket, they do a pork steak there. It's really good. So I'm with you. That's probably my favorite place too, if, if you can wait in line and do all that stuff. Of course, there's no lines right now, but that's a good answer. I like that answer, even from a yes. skinny man. That's a good barbecue uh, answer. So. Uh, 
<laughs> the other one, you, you've seen it coming. What's the best Tex-Mex in your opinion? Austin, Texas, somebody comes to visit. They ask for Tex-Mex. Where are you taking them? Well, Nathan, that's a tough one. I do say, I mean, this is, it's definitely tried and true, but I like Papacitos. I just think anytime anybody comes to town, all my friends come in from out of town, they always want to go to Papacitos. Although there's plenty of places that are going to make the top five. You know, there's there's Chewy's, Uncle Julio's, Cantina Laredo. Those are all great places. But I think for the tip top, if you're going to take me to, to a Tex-Mex place, I want to say Papacitos. So kind of grew up on that from the Dallas area. I know they're a Houston-based company, but I do like them. I think that's another pretty good answer. It's hard to go wrong with any of the Papas, by the way. Papa Do's, Papacitos. Right. It's pretty yeah. good stuff there. I, I was, I was, though I like Papa Do's, I was a little heartbroken when they put the Papa Do's and not the Papacitos in by the, the church building. So that's uh, true. I was kind of for that. They did that. And there's a vacant restaurant right next door. I keep I thinking, know, surely. I know. Surely. Just they always the go next door. Just, just go ahead and complete the process. Complete it. And That's you'll right. see a whole lot more mosaic people there, I'm sure. <laughs> probably so. Probably so. Hey, let's talk about movies. Okay. So I was listening to to your sermon this past weekend and you made a little little reference to dystopian movies. And of course, some people want to know what's your favorite movie. I, I, I really would like to know like what type of movies do you like? Like what 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 genre, what style of movies are you drawn to? And what is it that you like about them? Well, since this is totally between me and you, Nathan, I know no one's overhearing this. I can be totally honest and transparent. Please. I really, I really like sci-fi. I know a lot of people don't. Some people do. That's not to say I don't like any other genre. I like plenty of other genres. I don't do a whole lot of chick flicks, although I've seen plenty of those in, in their own place. I, I like those, watch those, and are moved by those. If we want to get deeper in, into those, we can for sure. But I do like sci-fi. So you know, the top of that for sure, probably all-time favorite movie. I'm going to disappoint anybody no matter what I say here, but it's Empire Strikes Back. Grew up on it. Best Star Wars movie. I'm happy to debate that all day long if you want to get into a, a virtual forum, SmackDown. <laughs> and we, we can go toe-to-toe there with Irvin Kershner and his, his directorial uh, panache making that a, a science fiction classic. So like, you know, like Star Wars in general, but Empire Strikes Back, like that one. Blade Runner is a controversial choice. The Ridley Scott kind of classic. I think it's a great example of, of sort of the pastiche, postmodern kind of vibe that was around then. Not necessarily a fan of Ridley Scott in general. I know he's fairly atheist dude to believe in God, but I love that uh, the dystopian theme there. You know, I think it was, uh, I forget who said this, but basically the role, maybe it was Philip K. Dick, but the role of sci-fi, no, it wasn't him, somebody else. He said the role of sci-fi really isn't necessarily to predict the future, it's to prevent the future. Hmm. By showing you kind of what people could become, society could become, hopefully it steers us off from that course. And, you know, I think Blade Runner presents a world in which people don't care about each other. Um, they haven't cared about the planet. They haven't cared about the environment. They don't care about each other. And here is sort of, you know, humankind played out. But still, you see vestiges of humanity kind of popping up in there throughout that. But so I like that one. Uh, I know it can be a controversial choice. Definitely a flop when it came out, but it's a sort of a cult classic now. Do you put like Hunger Games into that same box? Or, or oh, that, gosh, or no. Those? I haven't. I have true confessions. I've never seen or read Hunger Games, although my wife likes that. And I know that's supposed to be, although I have read other, her other series, you know, Suzanne Collins said that the Gregor, the Overlander series, if that's sort of her pre uh, hunger Games series and those are good books. I know she's a good writer. I just, I never got into that. Speaking of books, here's, here's another question. Some people wanted to know if you were going to write a book about something that had nothing to do with your church or sports, what would it be? Neither church nor sports. Now, they see that they're already kind of pigeonholing me, Nathan. And I'm just going to tell you, I, I like a lot of stuff. So I'm happy to talk about whatever with anybody, anytime. But I think if I had to write a book, it's a great question. Not church, not a fair question, but 
I'll indulge you. And not uh, not church, not sports. I would say probably something on the history of music. Hmm. I like music a lot, and I like a lot of different genres. Not all, but I like a lot of music. I like information and history, and again, that sort of tiptoes over into strengths finder stuff, which we can kind of get to. But I like I, I like music. I like learning influences. I like kind of seeing how it all connected, how it developed. Music, you know, Martin Luther said, is a, is a gift from God. It makes people cheerful and drives the devil away. Hmm. So I like I like music, and I probably would want to, want to write a book. I love to research and write a book on the history of music. That's pretty fascinating. That? I would actually like that book. Speaking of music, someone asked here, what was the most rock star life moment that you've ever had? <laughs> the mo- okay, most rock star life moment I've ever had. Okay, I hinted at this in my sermon on Sunday, but I am gonna, I'm going to unpack this and I hope tell you the full story. So I hinted at it on Sunday, but years ago, just to set the context, so I'm, I'm a bit of a... A wannabe musician. Uh, I took piano as a kid. I did it for a, a while. I taught myself guitar. I loved to play bass. So when I when I came to Christ in college, the church band needed a bass player. Since it's a can't sing, that's where all guitar players go who can't sing. They go to the bass. Oh man! So, so I went <laughs> to the bass. Apologies to all of our bass Apologies players. Apologies to all the bass players. So Sting, McCartney, you know those guys. They can sing and play bass, but that's the exception. So I picked up the bass. And so I picked up the bass basically to be able to play music and play in church bands and all that because they're always needing a bassist. I moved to Austin, Texas, got a part of this church years ago, sort of in a different you know, incarnation a lifetime ago, it seemed. And at the time, and I know people aren't going to believe this, but we actually had Israel Houghton as our worship leader. Now, he doesn't hold a candle to you, Nathan, or to Seth or any of our team, but... Of course not. No, of course not. But Israel Houghton, you know, he he was Lakewood's worship leader for a long time. I'm not quite sure where he is today, but he's sold millions of records, won Grammys, Dove Awards. He's just ridiculously talented. Some of you may remember some songs like Friend of God, uh, You Are Good. I was likely like the first person to ever play those songs. He would come to Austin, uh, living out of town, come here, lead worship for us on a weekend, write these songs... And my friend Jed's like, you know, walk in closet over the weekend and we debut these on Sunday. Anyway, I'm there playing and you've got to, so here's the picture. Okay. They've got the band and the band that they would bring in would be some, sometimes some of Israel's friends really to, to, so our music would be at the next level. Again, not anything where we are at Mosaic now, but he had playing with them, this keyboard player named Aaron Lindsay. He's been new breeds, uh, keyboard guy for a long time. If you know, Aaron, he's, ridiculous next level keyboard. So Aaron Lindsay, that's right. Aaron Lindsay. So you've got, you've got Israel Houghton, you know, playing acoustic guitar or keys or singing or leading Aaron also on keys. You've got a guy named Raymond Boyd, who's formerly Michael W. Smith's drummer, if you know that name. He was our drummer. Behind me on the organ was my friend Philip, who was like the top five organ players in the Austin music scene. Austin Chronicle voted him that. So we got all those guys and me on the bass. And not because they chose me, not because they wanted me. I was what was assigned to them. I was the only guy, apparently, at the church at the time who could play bass. So I'm in there and, you know, not a ton of gospel background, although I got to pick it up being around Israel. But once upon a time, he looked over at me after after we did a set on a Sunday. He's like, you know what? You're not that bad. (laughs) And so I got what was almost a compliment. I'm sure he meant that in the most uplifting way. And I've lived off that compliment for like 15 years. So it doesn't matter what anybody says. Israel Houghton called my bass playing good. And (laughs) 
<laughs> I think, and that was as good as it got. So my real most rock star life moment, there it was, playing with a real dim musician. And he sort of basically told me that I wasn't terrible. So, but I'll take it. That's great. Well, speaking of, of music, another question here, and this is really interesting, is what's the soundtrack of your life? Like if you could create a playlist, oh what would it be? And, you know, I, I've always heard that there's really only two kinds of music. Do you know the two kinds of music I'm talking about? Good music and bad music. Good music and bad music. That's right. So let's take this by genre here, first of all. So okay, if you're, cool. If, this if, is fun. If, I like if this. If we're going to make a playlist, it can't just all be one genre because that's boring. Boring. So let's make a playlist. What what right. jazz what jazz song or musicians going on the playlist? That's easy one for me. Coltrane for sure. The Train. The Train. John Coltrane. The Love Supreme. All right. So we got Coltrane. Nineteen uh, sixties. Yeah. Coltrane fan for sure. Okay. How about folk? You got any folk that you want to throw in there? That's Bob Dylan. Yeah. Bob Dylan. Highway sixty one revisited. That's a good album. Of course, he's got a lot of albums, but I like that one. Classic rock. Oh. I would say Beatles Abbey Road. Beatles Abbey Road. All right. Beatles Abbey Road, classic rock. Let's bump up to 80s, which some people call classic now. 80s rock. Okay. What do you got? Joshua Tree, U2. Count that. Joshua big, big Tree, U2. Fan, U2. They can certainly lean over in the 90s too. So 80s rock. Yeah, U2. And probably some Tom Petty. He's a big, big 80s guy too, like, like Tom Petty. Okay, 80s pop. 80s pop. Okay, as far as pop goes, I don't think it gets much better than the 80s. I love, love 80s pop. You know, you've certainly got Michael Jackson, man, Whitney Houston, Huey Lewis, some Huey Lewis stuff. R&B. R&B. Well, Boys to Men, I came of age, you know, and, and sort of Boys to Men are out. So they were big Motown Philly. I mean, I think you probably remember where you were when you heard that song for the first time. <laughs> we got a lot of high school memories driving around singing that song. So, Okay, that's good. Hey, you know, by the way, we'll just pause on the shotgun rapid fire. I, I understand that while we were recording a service last week, our graphic designer learned about Millie Vanilli for the first time in the sound booth last week. Is that a true story? Can you confirm or deny that? <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> I introduced Millie Vanilli as a way to break the ice in the middle of a very tense recording session. So, <laughs> the- See, and again, here we go, Strengths Finder. It's just the, the Millie Vanilli story allows one to tell the very interesting and sordid history behind one of music's most embarrassing kind of black eye moments. So we'll have to we'll have to put that in your book someday. Make a note of that. Electronic. Electronica. Electronic Daft Punk with Discovery. Like I like Daft Punk. So a little French Euro kind of stuff. Okay. Hip hop. Hip hop and country, probably two genres I don't get into a ton. So sorry. Sorry about that. Okay, so we strike the um, hip hop and the country. You're just hip hop and country. Yeah, kind of right. one equal one opportunity story. offender there, I guess. So, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Okay. How about CCM, contemporary Christian music? Here we go. Okay, I like. <laughs> I grew up on Amy Grant. I like Amy Grant. So lead me on. Voted by the way, number one all time CCM album by the readers, whoever those folks are. But like, lead me on. That's a good one. All right, gospel music. There's a couple of ones that are a little more recent, but as we worship, I like that. William McDowell. That's got a bunch of good songs on there. Anthony Brown, Everyday Jesus. I know we've got we've done some songs off his record in our church too. So, Anthony Brown spins a lot in our home for sure. All right, that's good. Okay, final genre, unless you want to add on an extra, but classical. Okay. Well, my piano teacher liked Chopin, Frederick Chopin. So I like a lot of Chopin music. Make my kids endure that. Classic. Chopin with the kids. That sounds like a good time. I hope you bring some milkshakes to sweeten that thing up just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) You know, speaking of sweetening it up, when it comes to classical music, my favorite is actually Mozart's Requiem. It's one of the most beautiful, moving pieces of music. But if you know the history of that, it was written, it's like funeral music. But there's no words to it, so you don't know. It's just, it's this beautiful, moving, emotional music. So anyway, check it out. 
that was fun. Well, it does seem like, and of course I know you fairly well. And one of the things I know about you is that you're interested in a lot of different things. You're like a collector of information. What are some of your other interests outside of church life? I mean, and follow up for that. What is it about you that makes you interested in so many different things? Well, we've kind of touched a little bit on movies, a little bit on music. I've got a bunch of interests. So how that helps me, I think, in terms of pastoring, I genuinely am interested in people. I like hearing about what makes people tick, and I like having a connection with them, especially over an area of interest. It's just fun for me. So that sort of motivates me to learn a lot about a lot of different things. So I like sports, certainly. I'm super competitive. If they keep score, I probably follow it. So hockey, basketball, NBA, college hoops, NFL, Major League Baseball. I mean, Olympics, listen, if they put a stopwatch on it, I'm going to watch it. If they measure it, I'm going to follow it. So I like that. And that's what's well, probably, again, Strengths Finders talk too. I like sports. Again, we talked about food. I like travel, new places, visiting things. But I think all, all of those kind of interests, uh, you know, theology, certainly books, reading, museums, art, all that stuff, I, I find myself, to, I guess, to be a curious person, although I really love information about all those areas. And I think that, that lends over to something we've kind of dropped now, which is which is something called Strengths Finder, which I imagine a bit of our audience is going to know. So last week, if you're on, if you heard the podcast, Carrie talked a lot about the Enneagram, and that's these are all sort of a level of personality tools, and they all sort of, they're all good, I love them all, uh, but they all sort of help to capture a different part of how God made us. So Strengths Finder is unique for helping to capture your your talent, what God put in you, those areas of talent that you can leverage then into strengths in your workplace, in your relationship. So I have a lot of familiarity with it. I do actually seminars for this. I have for years, for churches, for nonprofits, for businesses. So if there's someone listening to this and you're in need of or looking for a way to do some team building, I'm happy to offer myself just as a resource to you. I've got a ton of familiarity with this. I've facilitated groups of all different kinds of sizes. Locally here in Austin, I've helped to do this for Apple, Intel, T3 advertising for some hospitals, attorneys, restaurants, and certainly churches and all kinds of stuff. So I love doing I love helping people find out who God's meant to be and hopefully how to work together to achieve great teamwork. I love that. But a couple of my themes, so the, you take a test, it spits out what are called your top five themes. This is a tool developed by the Gallup organization, very credible. Actually, this test was developed by a Christian man by the name of Dr. Donald Clifton. He's passed on as a father of what's called positive psychology, love God, and so wanted to, to find out how to measure what God put in people. So I developed this test, 20 years of research, interviewed 20 million people. What do you do best every day? Try to put some vocabulary that's positively themed, of course, around these buckets of talent. You take a test, online test, and it gives you your top five. You can pay extra for the other, I think, the remainder of your themes. They estimate there's 34 possible talent buckets. Again, they call these themes. You get your top five. My top one was competition. So <laughs> we've already gone there with Pastor Brett. Thank you very much. So which he has competition too, not surprisingly. <laughs> so what that means is not necessarily you enjoy competing, although I certainly do, but it's that you enjoy, in general, high-risk situations where there's an opportunity to sort of turn the tide, hence the Rudy, you know, kind of made-for-school, after-school special, whatever. I love that opportunity to be able to turn around a difficult situation and to help people win in the end. You do so, like to you, win yourself, though, right? But I, I don't mind. 
mind. What, I, I actually, I, I don't mind it. Would, yes. would this be, would this be a good opportunity for me to insert my first encounter with you? <laughs> I, it might. I hope it was positive. I'm not sure I recall it. Well, it was positive for somebody. There was, there was some positivity involved. So I, I have oh to tell gosh. this story. And then, and then you can come back and tell us more about achievement and what comes next. But I, I'll never forget this. It did was, I embarrass myself? I embarrassed myself. I'm sure I did. I don't know. I'm pretty sure you embarrassed me, but it depends on who was watching. Thankfully, there's only three of us in the room. But this was back in uh, 2005 or so. And I had come by the old office building to visit with our friend Philip Edwards that you just mentioned a few minutes ago. And Philip and I were playing foosball, just talking, like casually mm-hmm. playing. I know that's not a thing in your world, but in our world, we were just sort of hitting the ball around talking. And so you came into the room, and I'd seen you before, but I'd never met you. And you came into the room, and you said, me against y'all. Let's go right now. Oh, no. That was the introduction. Sure. Uh, oh. And I'm not sure how many minutes it took, but it was only a few. And you made quick work of the two of us. You, you defeated both of us, left us in our humiliation. Pretty sure we didn't score one point on you. You raised both hands above your head and walked out and said, have a great Stop. day, fellas. And, uh, that- <laughs> oh, no. Jesus, take the wheel. I just, <laughs> Jesus, you know, take the wheel. Oh, man. But I'll never forget. It's what, I actually love that about you. I, it, it's part of what helps make our church great and part of what's made me greater than I was before I got to know you. So I, I do appreciate that about you very much. Well, you're very kind. I'm not sure everybody would go there. I think like on my honeymoon, I made my wife cry playing cards. So, <laughs> you know, a few months ago we were playing some game with my daughter kids and I, there's this thing where you, you it's called throw, throw burrito. It's a game you get target. You throw a plastic burrito. It's soft, like a pillow. It's thrown at my daughter, made her cry. My wife's like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and so some old habits die hard. So I just repent right now. I'm sorry for that. Well, every strength has a weakness, but maybe you can tell yes. us a little bit more about the upside of Achiever and the other things that make you who you sure. are. Sure. Yeah, Achiever. So that's, uh, that's a, a number of our people who listen to this are going to have Achiever. That's what's called an executing theme. That tends to show up in people as a strong drive to complete things, to complete tasks uh, daily, basically. So a lot of you guys know Pastor, a lot of you all know Pastor Brett Milliken. He also has a, a similar theme. It's called responsibility, also what's called an executing theme. But in contrast to someone with responsibility who would tend to say yes to a lot of things in a broad swath, achievers tend to be a little more narrowly focused. So they'll tend to focus on completing things like degree programs, have a daily sense of I have to accomplish things today. They, the, the, the people at Gallup call it learning to live with the whisper of discontent. Basically, what you do is never enough. The downside of that is I never feel like what I do is ever enough, and that's definitely can be a downside to not only me, but I'm sure living with me and at a certain level working with me and for me. All right, so if I'm keeping track here, we've got competition, achiever. What else is here in the top five? Probably one that's going to be interesting to people, I would imagine, would be that input theme. Input is a, a tendency to you, you want to research, you want to collect, you like information. So I can see going back even to my childhood, you know, I would collect stuff all the time. It's like I collected stamps, I collected coins, I collected baseball cards, which I love baseball cards because they themselves collect competitive information. So I would tend to collect, when I get into an artist, I want all their albums. When I get into the history of something, something, I want to learn all about it. But it also helps me overcome sometimes of a relational gap. I don't have 
<laughs> this sounds terrible. Sorry. Uh, any what are called relational building themes. It's almost like, and I'm sorry, I'm taking you back here. Like you know, it's like Tommy Boy in that movie. Like I've got what you would call a little bit of a weight problem, but I've got a uh, you know no relational building themes. So my wife likes to call me a robot. I'm not that. I do have a people theme, which is competition, but she says it's not really a people theme because I just want to be around people to win. But that's not true. I want to help people win themselves. That's really the gospel thrust of that, of course. Selfishly, yes. Unredeemed self, yes. But the redemptive part of that is you can help people to win and to turn our lives around and win them for Jesus, win them to Jesus and to a better purpose and a better cause. But input is in there as, as well, and that's just uh, – Liking, I love to learn about you. I love to learn about people, the people around me. So I've got learner too. That's a fourth one. Learner input work together to learn about the world around me, about the people around me. And so when I ask you, like, man, when's your birthday? Where are you from? Where'd you go to high school? What's your mascot? I really am interested in those things. They're very interesting for me, and I love to talk and chat and to get to know people. So it helps me with that. That's great. I think I think we share two of the top five, and it is it's the learner and input. So mm-hmm. there you go, context, learner, strategic yes. input, responsibility on my end. So I'm fe- feeding your input by giving you my top five. Yes, yes. <laughs> so one of the things that I, I know for me, and I'm sure this is true for you, that's really helpful when you have uh, a learner input, things like that, context, of course, which is my number one theme, is that when God puts you into a situation mm-hmm. that you didn't know you were going to be in. Uh, I would say that you're well equipped to sort of get the lay of the land, to ascertain the situation, you know, what's going on, who are the people that God has put around you. And I would actually think that's a great, you know, may not be considered relational by StrengthsFinder standards, but I think it's a great relational tool to be able to understand the people you're with so that you can minister to them more effectively. And of course, when you came and sort of took over what is now Mosaic Church as its lead pastor. You entered into a situation with a lot of different people around you. Maybe you could just, for those who are newer to the church, you, you could just refresh us a little bit on what things were like in 2010 and what you learned as you began to take in all the information about what this church was when you stepped back into it. Sure. Great question. Thanks. So I had been a part of this church previously for nine years as a campus missionary working with primarily college students. I had gone away and left Austin, moved to Nashville for two years. During that time, the, the previous pastor stepped back. The church had been in severe decline for a number of years. He didn't feel the board. It felt like it was wise for him to continue. So he sort of recused himself and moved on. The church was in free fall, people leaving, staff leaving, of course, finances falling. And so the church was looking for anybody who was sort of brave enough or dumb enough to step into that. And that's how, at the time, 34-year-olds get to be lead pastors was sort of nobody else kind of wanted the job. But I did because I love the people. I did. I love the people here. I love my friends here. love the church here. love what it was. loved all the things that were they were there to work with. And so I don't have to have all – part of that learner theme makes you – enables you to come in and assess a situation and quickly determine a course of action. It's almost like a consultant. So that's why I enjoy consulting with, with businesses and our business people to help them optimize their teams. But so, you know, in all that, you, you kind of walk. And then at the same time that the church redid its form of church government, brand new. It was it also had been what's fair to say is that a lot of people who were my age and younger had left sort of a disconnect with an older pastor. Not that an older pastor can't connect to younger folks. 
but he in particular didn't particularly care to minister to families and kids. So there were a lot of boomers that were around. And so I had to go to work to try to understand and minister to that generation. So previously, again, it's sort of been Morgan speaking and ministering to Gen Xers and then Gen Y on campus. But boomers is a whole new world for me. And there's one thing I learned is that boomers really love information. They're sort of born in the service industry. So, you know, each generation, and I got a lot of this thinking from my friend Tim Elmore. You may know him. He uh, does a lot of work with college students and high school students. Uh, brilliant. He's sort of the successor to John Maxwell's leadership empire, but focuses in on students. But I learned from Tim Elmore the importance of understanding the different generations and how your presentation impacts those. So I just, I learned that boomers, man, they like information. So over the years, I've had very few boomers, unlike Gen X, who prioritize relationships. Very few boomers ever say, hey, I wish I spent more time with you. Their thought is, hey, I kind of wish the sermon was better or I liked your references or whatever. Gen Xers in general are a little reversed. It's, hey, great with the sermon, but I want more time with you. So it's prioritize relationship. So again, there's a little bit of a give and take there, and I had to learn how to relate to a different generation in order to keep us together. I just believe we're better together. It's sort of like the, the shuffle button on your playlist. You talked about music earlier in different genres. You know, keeping it one genre, it's kind of boring. So I like to hit shuffle on generations and cultures and kind of see what comes from that. Hmm. That's really great. In addition, of course, to the multi-generational aspect of this church, something else that's very unique about Mosaic, certainly unique in my church experience, is the multi-ethnic aspect of who we are. And of course, as you know, it takes a lot of humility and learning to be able to, to, to figure out how to both love and lead people who come from different cultural backgrounds. Talk to us a little bit about what you have learned in your tenure as being a lead pastor of a multi-ethnic church, what you've learned personally, but what you've learned about leading in this kind of space. I would say that leading in this space is incredibly complex and challenging, but deeply rewarding. I think that leading in this space is a gift because I I guess what I've come to learn is that just like with different generations, different people groups have different expectations of what that word pastor means. And that's been something I've had to learn how to value. Hmm. And having somewhat come to understand what that means in different cultures, for example, in the African American culture, that word pastor is is it's a deeply meaningful word. If you, if you think about, especially leadership in the black community in the 20th century, 21st century, most of the well-known black leaders have been religious figures also at the same time, both Christian and non-Christian. So it's all the way, from, of course, from MLK to Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, Louis Farrakhan. The, the religious leaders in the black community are advocates and spokesperson for their communities. And so that's not always the same for the white community. There's not that same expectation for a number of, of course, reasons. My point saying that is, for me now, when an African-American person calls me pastor, it's deeply meaningful. And you know, early on, I think in pastoring, I used to kind of try to like move people off that. Like, don't call me pastor. That's a little more of a white culture, egalitarian, kind of buddy-buddy, you know, lack of respect for authority kind of thing. So, mm. but I found it was actually unintentionally dishonoring a person who was trying to communicate honor to tell them not to call me pastor. And so again, my, my, my main point is that learning how to lead in this space is rewarding. When you come 
to somewhat understand the people that God has called you to lead and that are, are willing to follow. So it's a, it's complex, but it's deeply rewarding and I wouldn't trade it for anything. So to try to connect maybe two topics here, Morgan, last week, of course, we talked with Carrie about the Enneagram. And I guess let me just ask you real quickly. You're familiar with that. Obviously, you live with what I think is an Enneagram expert. What Enneagram type would you classify yourself as? A three. Definitely. That hits me square between the eyes. So I'm a three in all my glorious and flawed, imperfect threeness, Nathan. <laughs> One of the questions we had was, what's, the, what's your number and what's the numberiest thing about you? Oh man, the most numbery thing about me. Oh <laughs> uh, man, I probably should ask Carrie about that. That's, that'd be a good question for her. I'm not sure how to even answer that question, although it's a good one. I think if you want to look up and down the list of good stuff about threes and bad stuff, man, that it it fairly nails me and prompts me to ask Jesus to change me even more and to help rescue me. I feel like I, I, when I read through the things that you're going about the three, I, Paul's words come to mind, oh, wretched man that I am, <laughs> who will save me from this body of sin. So that's how I feel about it. So there you go. Yeah, st- studying the Enneagram, which has primarily helped me with me more than anything else, but it's also helped me gain an appreciation for people. And so knowing a good bit about the Enneagram type three, it actually makes the way that you lead with humility and vulnerability far more impactful to me as someone who follows you than it would if you were a different number. But but within that, I guess I want to ask a question that will require probably some humility and vulnerability. And that's this. What do you find to be the most intimidating part of leading a multi-ethnic church? Well, I'm going to cheat a little bit here and sort of maybe even try to pick up on the numbery thing in a, in a good way. You know, the, the three, if you know anything about Enneagram, up to a point, they can take on a persona. Now, that when that's healthy, what that looks like really is living out what, what Paul says in terms of a missional approach to a global multi-ethnic community, which certainly he was living in the midst of in, you know, the first century Rome. It's multicultural, it's Greco-Roman, it's global, you know, for their time. And that is, he said, I become all things to all people that I might win some to the Greek become like the Greek. To the Jew, I become like the Jew. And so, of course, Paul is inherently Jewish. He's not saying to culturally appropriate anything. He's just saying he tries to get into the mindset and the understanding, I think is what he's going with this, of different people groups in order to make gospel connections. And so for me as a three, and healthy, I can, I can learn how to connect with different people groups. I can't do it on my own. I need help. That's why I'm so grateful for the people of Mosaic who have especially formed me and challenged me and critiqued me over the years. But I can become, up to a point, all things, all people, which is why, again, I enjoy learning about different people, enjoy different music, genres, cultures, movies, foods, etc. It helps me touch people's lives in a way that I couldn't otherwise. So I enjoy trying to understand as best I can in, in terms of my own body and background and formation, the Asian American experience, black experience, Latino American experience, Hispanic experience. So I enjoy that challenge because I believe we're better together. What I would hope is that people would see Jesus because of our shared commitment to loving him together. That's what I hope for. Now, whenever you bring all those kind of different people in different spaces because of 
the truth and the fact that we're we're all tainted by sin, both personally, our culture is tainted by sin systemically, historically. You get an overlay of hurts and wounds and expectations and challenges, and then therefore enters into the sort of the trap of the three, which is being reluctant to enter into negative emotional space. And so the hardest part for the three is when you feel like you failed or when people let you know that you have failed. You have actually, in fact, failed them. Like you did not do a good job. You misrepresented my perspective and you fell short, which is just going to be inevitable, number one, because we're human. But especially in the complexified space of multi-ethnic church, that is really hard. And that's what makes multi-ethnic church hard and complex and why a lot of people don't want to either lead it or follow in it because you're subject to those sorts of currents. So I enjoy the challenge and the opportunity to show Jesus more clearly through a multi-ethnic space. Secondarily from that, I benefit. I'm rewarded by being shaped and changed and learning and growing. But again, to hear like, man, you blew it or you failed or you didn't understand, that's hard to hear, especially when your whole heart all along, obviously, is to help, is to promote Jesus, is to see God's kingdom come and to redeem people and cultures. So that's that's the challenge for sure. So I, I hope that kind of answers the question. Try to take a stab at that. I think that's a that's a great answer, and you're you're a great leader for a lot of people, but you certainly have helped me a lot, being someone who is also pasty white like yourself, coming from a, a fairly similar background. I know for me, it's been sort of an evolution of starting to understand and, and to realize that systemic inequities exist. How and when did you first start to realize that like, oh man, I I actually live a different existence than some of my brothers and sisters of color because of the way that the world and our country in particular is set up. Do, Do you remember kind of an epiphany moment or a season where that all really started to become clear to you? Well, so we're going there. Yeah, very good. I like it. I I grew up in the Dallas area. You may know this. In Ir- Irving, Texas. Thank you. Graduate Irving High School. Our school colors were black, gold, and bold, just to set the record straight on that. Fairly diverse environment. Pretty, you know, kind of lower middle class background, not exclusively, but that was our, our, our socioeconomic status. So there's quite a lot of diversity in our high school. But in terms of really caring about that and understanding a little bit kind of how the world was set up for some and against others, you know, I, of course, you, you know from history, you, you read about slavery, Jim Crow, these things, you know, MLK, Cesar Chavez, you know, these things exist. But in terms of really caring, I would have to say is really when I came to Christ in a multi-ethnic campus ministry at the University of Houston, the University of Houston, as they, they say. And it was there that that multi-ethnic campus group and space really challenged a lot of my perceptions about people of color, different backgrounds. It really was very diverse, you know, black, white, Latino, Asian. They're all together in this one group. And my roommates were people of different backgrounds. And so I began to hear their stories. Never doubted that the world could be racist. I think you just read history. It's pretty obvious. But to see how far those go and how those shape people's backgrounds and even the trauma they, they really carry that helped me tremendously, and that was painful for me to step into. I just sort of expected people just to kind of love me, accept me, kind of how I was. Then kind of find out they've been hurt by people like me, and if people like me have hurt them. Maybe I've hurt them and not know that just through my own ignorance, prejudice. So I had to come to grips with that. That's sort of you know part A to answer your question. Part B was when I started pastoring. So flash forward a decade or so, coming out of campus ministry, which is multi-ethnic, but really is when I started pastoring. 
I think around that time is really when social media starts blowing up. Of course, the internet was around, but people don't have smartphones, cameras, social media is a big deal. And so many more stories began to be shared. And the people in our church began, and I'll forever owe them a debt for this, but they began to trust me with their trauma and began to hmm. invite me to hear their stories and to see the world through their eyes, certainly ultimately with, with Christ at the center and above and beneath and around and all that, but just to, to bring me into that over and over again. And so I think that, again, coming to Christ in a multi-ethnic campus ministry, I can't overstate how much that shaped me, you know, 18 to 22-year-old. And then coming into pastoring in a church that was multi-ethnic as well, with the world of the last decade or so, with social media and the internet and smartphones, accelerating the promotion of all those stories and narratives that people who are white would tend to want to eliminate or ignore or put down. But when the people you love have experienced the same things over and over and over, you know, you got to ask why and you got to lean into that and you got to, you got to be open and willing to go there with them. And so I think that those things, again, it's just knowing people. And when you love them, you're able to, to, to hear what matters to them and hear their heartbeat. So people trusted me with that, and I'm, I'm very grateful for it. We think about the way that your heart and your head intersect, and that comes out in a lot of your messages because it, it's clear that you value input from people from a lot of different perspectives. And so I think I've heard more interesting quotes from people I might have never even stumbled across reading in some of your messages than I've heard anywhere else. One of the questions that people ask, because of course they experience this along with me week in and week out with the great messages that you preach, you're very kind. Um, well, it's true. So, but who who are some of the more influential theologians, pastors, authors, thinkers, philosophers that have really helped shape you for the kind of ministry that you're in now? It's a great question. I think that in terms of specifically trying to think through and do specifically multi-ethnic ministry well, there's a, you know, it's kind of a short list of people that have have shaped me. Michael Emerson is one. Some of you may know that name. I've quoted him before. He's written a couple of books, Divided by Faith, came out around 2000 with another researcher named Christian Smith. It just looked at the ways in which specifically American, Christian, or Protestant really, views on race divide the church and have it sort of set up to be separate. And the degree to which particularly American white Protestants don't have the toolkit of language an experience to be able to detect race and bias. Mm. So the book was pretty bleak <laughs> and it kind of ended on a down note. You get through, you're like, oh my God, is there any hope for the world? But it's just, it's just sort of calling it like it is. And thankfully though, I think Michael Emerson, he and I actually had a, a level of an email exchange. I've been trying to kind of get him to come here. He was a researcher at Rice for a while. I think he's at, at uh, Park University in Chicago now. But he wrote a sequel with a broader group of researchers Asian, Hispanic, female. So, and that book was called United by Faith. And that looked at the ways in which, again, this is sort of correlates with more positive psychology, you know, kind of what do you do best, where and how, when multi-ethnic churches have made it throughout history, actually, the history of the church, how do they do it? So his writings have been a real help for me. Very, mm -hmm. very shaping force. Not the, not the same Michael Anderson, by the way, that played Benjamin Linus ben Line Unlost. Benjamin Lost. Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> Thank you for that. That was, that was a deep cut right there. I appreciate that one. There you go. Soon Chan Ra is a you know, he's a Korean writer. He's a more of a he's a highly prophetic. If you read him, he's you know famous kind of got got on the scene with the next evangelicalism. It's his book. I think it was two thousand eight or so. 
you know, really takes a hack at, at, at white church, white culture. It's a challenging read. He's a fairly prominent speaker and writer and thinker. You see him with Gospel Coalition folks, if you know that that terminology. You know, Tim Keller, he swims in those circles, a lot of circles, actually. Mm-hmm. But he is helpful to see things through the Asian-American experience. Again, prophetic voice. I think the third, the, whoever wrote the book of Ruth, Church History sort of holds it with Samuel. What a brilliant book. Can we just acknowledge the wisdom of the Christian scriptures? And just as an aside, this is why I'm just going to sort of pastor Bible teach for a second. The totality of the Christian scriptures is so important for the modern Christ follower. And here's why. You know, I, I've seen groups called the sort of like they're like, they call themselves the red letter Christians. And listen, I'm happy if anybody following Jesus, any church. But the idea behind that is they sort of exclude the epistles because they, you know, Paul's sort of mean and grouchy. Uh, they exclude the old Hebrew scriptures because God was mean and grouchy. Mm. But we lose something. Of course, it's all caricature, of course. I don't believe that. But we lose something if we eliminate any part of scripture. I mean, again, Timothy tells us, Paul says, man, all scripture is profitable. So for sure, the gospels are, are, have a, a level of priority, the words of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the life of Jesus. But if we take out the epistles, then how do we know how churches are supposed to run? As a pastor, I'm so grateful we weren't just left with the gospels. Mm-hmm. If we lose revelation, man, we lose hope for the future. We, I mean, imagine a Christian, a Christian worldview without the book of Revelation where we know Jesus wins. He overcomes evil. My goodness, so grateful for that. And if we throw out the, the, the Hebrew scriptures, we lose quite a lot too. You lose the character of Ruth. I mean, a, a book about a multi-ethnic, a multi-generational relationship that overcomes poverty, that overcomes gender bias, it overcomes racial bias, and through whom God brings not only King David, but ultimately King Jesus into the world. It's brilliant storytelling, just a pinnacle of the Hebrew narrative art form. You lose that if you're only a red-letter Christian or if you only have the Gospels. Mm. So again, I really love whoever wrote the Book of Ruth. Two more real quickly. Of course, I love Tim Keller's writings on it. And I had a professor in seminary, African-American guy, Dr. Blackburn, who really introduced me to a lot of sort of off-the-map, off-the-road Christian thinkers and writers who helped form me into being able to think through and lead in a multi-ethnic space. So, when, when did you first come to understand that God was calling you to pastor? Like, was that a decision that you made? Do you feel like God just spoke that to you? Was it just sort of, hey, I'm following you one day to the next, and this is where it, where it led me? Tell, tell us a little bit about that part of your journey. Well, it was probably less about just going into pastoring and more just about following Jesus into vocational ministry. So again, you know, my life was so deeply shaped and formed by being a part of a a campus ministry. If you're listening to this, you should financially support a campus missionary. Hopefully my campus missionaries are excited about this, but campus missionaries are some of the finest Christian people I know. I was from a mainline church background, so grateful for my upbringing church background in a pew. Mom and dad taught me but it just, it was campus ministry that really activated a lot of that. So I'm grateful for all of it. But when I came to Christ, it was in the campus ministry. It really placed a premium on going into vocational ministry. There's a downside of that. It can kind of ignore the priesthood of all, for all believers, you know, kind of thing, sort of unintentionally create a class of Christians. But I was grateful for the, the push to consider vocational ministry because it was what God had for me. A lot of spaces you'll go into, they'll affirm you if you want to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, programmer, but there's not a lot of spaces that'll affirm vocational ministry. You go into it, let's just face it, most parents look at you sideways, you think you're going to do what? Especially if you're raising support, you want to beg my friends, it's weird, it's, right. I didn't raise you for this, you know, you throw away your scholarship, your education. So 
but I was grateful for the nudge to do that. So at first I ran from it for sure. Did not, I, I told my kids, I'm only in ministry because Jesus told me to do it. At some point he's Lord or he's not. So Jesus became Lord for me and therefore he's got a right to tell me what to do with my life mm-hmm. and where to go and how to change. So since I gave him that right, which is of course his all along, he can tell me what to do with my career. And so that was a scary deal for me. So I, I followed him, felt called at a ministry conference. Say, There's a little moment you can come up and just say, hey, this is me. I'm going to do that. And then followed him into campus ministry. And it's sort of a natural evolution and progression from there to to lead, to disciple, to, to hopefully see Christ impact the campus. And then at some point, people thought, hey, you know, we want to give the guy a shot uh, with church. I think that's a really great answer. You know, speaking of Jesus becoming Lord, you know, on my own journey, there there was definitely a lot of delineation between being a believer and a follower. I can't really tell you when I started believing in Jesus because I sort of always had. And I certainly never had enough faith to be an atheist. You know, I, th- I think there was a book written by that I title. I think there was. And, but it's, it rings true for me. I can't look at all of this and think it came from nowhere. So I've sort of always believed, but, but I do, you know, distinctly remember when a decision was made to follow Jesus. And, and that is an important distinction. As we start to wrap up, just a couple more questions here. What's one of the most important lessons? that you've learned in actually following Jesus that has borne the most fruit in your life? The best thing I've done was simply something I learned from my mother and that I saw modeled by my campus minister, a man by the name of Leo Lawson, University of Houston. That's simply a daily connection with Jesus. Getting up every day, most often as you can, hasn't been 100% for me for sure, but making it a priority to daily pray, read the Bible, add into that uh, Christian books, literature, that to me has rescued me more than anything else. It's a it's sort of a North Star thing to which I can always return. And because, and, and I don't want to go too far with this because I know that any church that makes it is because of all the amazing people there. I mean, church really is a team sport. All our leaders at Mosaic, it's our from our team. It's our team members, it's our deacons, it's our community group leaders, certainly our elder team, our staff. But you just know, in a church, and I'm aware as a, as a, as a pastor, and therefore as an influential person in a lot of people's lives, that if my heart towards Jesus goes dark, that a lot of things are going to go bad in the world around me, mm-hmm. and therefore it's not too much of a stretch to say that there's a lot that's riding on that relationship. There's a lot that the, the flourishing or the minimalization of that simple habit, a lot of side effects of that either way. So the greatest thing I, I think I ever, ever learned is I saw my mom she got up every day as a kid and she would get up. She's a school teacher working hard to put food on the table for our family. And she had to be, I think in by school, seven, seven 30, got up five 30, She's reading her Bible. She's praying for me. She's crying out for me. It's probably the reason I'm, I'm serving Jesus now is my mom's prayers. And she did that. And then it was really worked into me by the campus minister as a part of and my, certainly my pastor in college to every day read your Bible, every day pray, pray in the Spirit, keep a journal, write down things, trust God, meet Him there. That to me has, has really changed my life. A close second would just be to surround myself with Diverse Christian people is the church. 
And those are, those are really great and resonate with me in many ways. My dad sort of set that same example that you talked about with your mom, certainly my mom too, but, but seeing that routine out, out of my dad's life, sowed a lot of seeds before they ever mm-hmm. brought fruit in my own life. Just a few other questions here. This one's a little little bit on the serious side, and then we'll we'll end okay. with a couple lighthearted ones that, that folks Great. are curious about. You, you and I both watched a video. I think we saw it separately, and then we ended up watching it together as a staff. And I've actually gone back and, and watched it a few more times because it's so moving. It was actually when Bono from U2 went to interview Eugene Peterson, or I guess just have a conversation more than an interview. And and you got a little glimpse into how Eugene Peterson, for those of you who don't know, he is the person who wrote what's called the Message Bible. You know, some controversy as to whether or not it's a Bible or a, or a really, really great commentary, but it's good work for Christians to read. It is. It's very, very helpful, even if you don't consider it authoritative. So just a side note there. But in that, in that meeting between he and Bono, we get a glimpse into how Eugene Peterson was spending the last few years of his life. He's got a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. When you think about your life, of course, the, the older that we get, the more we think about what the end looks like. What, what does retirement look like? For you, I, I know. For me, I saw I saw how Eugene Peterson was living out his last days, and I thought to myself, God, if I even could just have the grace somehow in my life to even scratch at that, I would feel so content and happy to know that I'm still spending my time pursuing Jesus, ministering to His people as best I could from even from the remote place where He lived. And I'm just curious how, how you think about that with your own life, you know, and hopefully, God willing, another 50, 60 years down the road. Yes. Well, one of the things that emerged from that interview for me was Eugene Peterson looking back and recounting the story of how he even got to do the Message Bible in the first place. It was really a very formative anecdote for me, which was that he just realized that the the church he was pastoring, it was like small town, small congregation, but they weren't able to connect with the Bible. They They didn't know how to read it. And so he set out to put the Bible, just one book, I think it was Galatians, into a more modern vernacular speech in a way that was meaningful for the people he was ministering to. And then they loved it so much, it caused him to love the Bible. And so he went on from there to do, you know, this book, next book, next book. Next thing you know, he's done the New Testament. They did the whole the whole Old Testament too, Hebrew scriptures. And he talked about, he said he never did it to become famous. He only did it to minister to the people that were in front of him. And I thought, you know, that is really the heart of a good pastor and one that I would hope to find in myself and any, any church that I would ever be a part of if I weren't pastoring, is to be faithful with what God has put in front of you, faithful with the lives, faithful with the people, and not to leverage that for future fame or glory. You know, we live in America. We live in the era of the, the rock star kind of pastor. And listen, I'm again, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of every church, every pastor, but I just know that sometimes the temptations and pressures I'll even feel is to be somebody. And I think a lot of that is what Martin Luther called vainglory. You know, I think the Greek is uh, kenodoxis, it's vainglory. Yeah, it's actually Paul's word there. But it's empty glory, it's fake glory. And so for all of us to focus on the thing that God has put in front of us and to be faithful with a little, I think that's that's how we're, we're given more. And certainly that's what happened with Eugene Peterson. He just did Galatians and he got the next book, the next book. The next thing you know, I mean, he's writing books and commentaries and he is who he is and you know, if, if Tom Hanks is America's dad, I think for a few years near the end of his life, you know, Eugene Peterson was the body of Christ dad in some ways, mm-hmm. and people loved him. And I think he, he just wanted people to love the Bible and to love each other. 
And I think that would be something I would hope that our church, Mosaic Church, would reflect to people and then that I would be able to, to give to my kids and to anybody who's a part of our local church. That's really great. And by the way, I think anybody can go just look that up on YouTube and watch it if you're interested. I yes. highly recommend it. Well, here's sort of a lighthearted but still serious question, and then we'll segue into our final question. If you could have a conversation with anybody, dead or alive, not named Jesus, who would it be? Oh, uh, uh, well, I'm out then. That was my answer. I, I, grew up, I did grow up in Sunday school. Oh, man. I guess that is it's hard to say off the top of my head. Certainly a Bible character would be amazing. I think one of the disciples would probably be pretty great. Peter comes to mind. I mean, what was that like? I think I, I like to, to interview people for the, what was that like to do that? And this is going to be probably a, a controversial person, but I would actually like to interview Barack Obama. Not This is not an endorsement of policy or party or anything like that. But I think as the first black president in the United States of America, given our nation's history, like what was that like mm. to lead, to face down what you face, to raise your family in, in the White House, to be married, to try to present an image to the world, to lead a country, certainly some of the decisions he's forced to make. But just in terms of, for me, in the intersection of race and leadership. Like that interview for me, I think would be an interesting one. After that, I mean, I love to interview Bono for sure. You know, music, you know, maybe Paul McCartney, Beatles. What was that like living through that era? I could go on, I suppose. Those are some pretty good answers. All right. Well, here's the final question. Okay. This should be a softball, though it may not be. But what would be a dream vacation you could take your wife on if time and money were no object? Where are you going? How long are you going to be gone? What are you doing? Oh, my gosh. Well, th this is the age-old question, Nathan. I'm going to be careful to preserve my marriage here because if you're like, if your marriage, if you're married, seem like mine, you know, you love one thing, she loves the other. So I, <laughs> I actually love it all. I love the beach and the mountains, although I really love the mountains. So I like getting up there and hiking and you know being around in nature and kind of stuff. Carrie does not like the mountains. It's not particularly comfortable, and you know, there's no beach basically is why. So it can get cold in the mountains, and she loves the warm temperatures. So in the interest of preserving my marriage, which is amazing, by the way, Carrie, you're great for listening to this, I think probably just taking her indefinitely to some place where there's a really remote tropical beach. I've heard, I think it's the Maldives are supposed to be amazing. Love to go there. We've been to Hawaii independently, been over together, love to go there. Although we do like... You know, we were planning on taking a 20th anniversary trip to Europe this summer. I should do Italy. So probably not going to be going to Italy. Probably not going right now. <laughs> Anytime soon. Oh, that was man. a big bummer. Uh, we were scheduled to go like in a month from now. I had a ticket. We bought our tickets last fall, places reserved, all that. And that was going to be a big deal for us. So, you know, love to go to, to Italy together. But to probably some remote, really nice beach, I think would be a nice place. Carrie, if you're listening, it sounds to me like you get to decide what Morgan's dream vacation is going to be. Because after all, I'm happy just being wherever she is, Nathan, as you know. What a fabulous answer. Okay, man, that is true, pause, that is true. rewind, write down what he just said. It'll it'll help you in the long run. Man, thanks so very, much very for being true. here. I, I, you know, I feel so honored and privileged to get to work with you every day. And so I'm really, really glad for other people to get to know the Morgan that I know a little bit better. So I hope this was a, a fun time for you. And I thank you for joining us today. Well, Nathan, thanks for uh, the questions. Thank you, everybody, for sending in your questions. But anytime after we get through COVID, that you'd like to come over and play foosball, or maybe we can just maintain a six-feet <laughs> separation and get our arms out real far across the table. 
Hey, I, I am all yours. So there you go. <laughs> very good. Very good. Morgan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank man. you. Have a great Thank day. You, thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Tuesdays Are For Talking. For more information about how to get and stay connected to us, head over to mosaicchurchaustin.com and be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We hope you'll make plans to join us next week.